Hi everyone, Dr. Elizabeth Bonet here. Dr. Liz, welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Before we jump in, please note that the podcast is not mental health treatment, nor should it replace mental health treatment. If you need psychotherapy or hypnotherapy, please seek treatment from a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so please feel free to contact me through my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z-hypnosis.com. Hi, Dr. Liz here. Just a reminder that you can feel better instantly, decrease fear and anxiety by getting a free hypnosis file by texting the word hypnotize to 444-999. It's a really easy way to join the newsletter and get those free files. So do that now. Pause your phone. I'm just kidding. Um, I am about to interview Dr. Glenn Livingston about his book, Never Binge Again. Now, he is the author of nine or 10 books total. He's written a lot about overeating and binging and how to stop that process. And this is not like any system you've ever heard, okay? Glenn worked in the food industry for many, many years before he finally really became like disgusted by it and said, I can't do this anymore. He's been very successful in working in different companies and then his own private practice. And eventually he launched this system and he's had over a million downloads of this book. So it is quite impactful. It really helped change my life. You've heard me say on the podcast before that I'm an ex-overeater, definitely struggle in the past and sometimes still do. But this book was a significant shift for me when I found it, and I really felt like it helped me make all the changes I needed to make in my life. This is part four of the weight loss series. So you can hear more about my personal story in part one, that's episode 149. We talk about how hypnosis can really help with Kelly Woods in part two. That's episode 150. And then in part three, we talk about five different foundations of health with Dr. Chris Murphy. And this is the fourth one with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Now, this book is free. So I encourage you to go and download it or listen to it, the Audible version. That one you have to pay for. But you can get it on PDF, on your Kindle, on your Nook for free. So I really encourage you to do that. Glenn has, I think, the most freebies that I've ever seen anyone give away with a download. You know how you join an email newsletter and they'll give you like, I don't know, one, two, three things, sometimes four. He has like a million. (laughs) I'm not kidding. If you're at all interested in this, please go and check out his system. It really could change your life. And you'll hear us talk in the interview that you could be 100 hours away from freedom. You really are that close to it. I hope you enjoy this interview and that it helps you also create freedom in your life around food. Hi, Glenn. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. I did tell the listeners in the intro that you run a really incredible different program than anything else I had ever heard. Okay, so I'm going to start there. 
<laughs> well, that that's nicer than saying this guy's a real weirdo, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I first ran across you on a podcast interview, The Addicted Mind. I love that podcast. It's, it's fun to listen to. And then I downloaded your ebook and then I poured over it for weeks. Right. And then I signed up for your training program. So it's not training program. I signed up for your coaching program, which I also uh -huh. found really helpful. Can you just tell the listeners how you hit on this idea initially? Painfully, through painful trial and error experience over the course of 30 years with my own binge eating problem. That's the best way to describe it. I'm, I'm not just a psychologist who decided I wanted to work with eating problems. I'm someone who you know, if you went through a 7-Eleven and you, they didn't have any more Pop-Tarts or pizza, it was probably because I was there before you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth, I'm 6'4", I'm and I'm reasonably muscular. And I figured out when I was about 17 years old that if I worked out for two and a half, three hours a day, that I, I could just eat whatever I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was great. I didn't think that was a problem. I thought that was fantastic. I... I I lived to eat and work out. And I, I lived like that all the way through college, and I was thin. I, I stayed thin, and I you know, didn't have any problem with dating or anything like that. And I was athletic, and you know, those were the good old days or bad old days, depending on how you look at it, because that's when it all got set up. And I, I found that when I no longer had the time to work out, because I got married at 22, and I started to commute from our house in Locust Valley, New York, all the way to the Bronx, which was two hours with traffic both ways. And then I had graduate school, which was about 10 times harder than college. Mm -hmm. Then I was seeing patients, and I had a wife who actually wanted to talk to me, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have the time to work out for three hours a day. I was a grown-up all of a sudden. And I found that the food had a life of its own, and I just couldn't... Um, I couldn't stop. I was still having six, 7,000 calories a day of food. And... Mm -hmm. and I gained weight. I would do things to try to lose it. So I'd go to different programs or, you know, coming from a family of 17 psychotherapists and psychologists, which by the way, if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it, how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, coming from that kind of a family, I, I figured the problem was that there must be a hole in my heart. You know, like if I could fill the hole in my heart, then mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I, I took this intensely psychological approach and I went to see the best psychologists and psychiatrists and, you know, I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I did everything I could possibly think of. And it was a very, very soulful journey mm -hmm. and I don't re regret taking it. I learned a lot about myself. I, I wrote a very bad book way back when in the process, trying to document what I was learning. Okay. And, and I think it made me a more soulful, compassionate person, but it didn't really fix the food problem. I would lose a little weight and then I would gain more and I'd lose weight and then I'd gain more. And depending what year you talk to me, I would think it was a more serious problem than others. But, um, as the years progressed, it became progressively more miserable. There were three things that happened. I'm sorry for such a long way to answer, but it's all relevant. Yeah. There are three things that happened that changed my paradigm. And I'll tell you what the resulting paradigm was. I realized that I'd been trying to love myself thin or fill the hole in my heart or nurture my inner wounded child back to health. Mm -hmm. The solution I came to 
was more like an alpha dog or alpha wolf approach where, you know, if an alpha wolf is being challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It, it snarls and growls at the um, challenger showed who's boss and basically says, get, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was the new paradigm that I arrived at, which eventually worked for me and I'll tell you how, but I want to tell you the things that caused the shift. Okay. My ex-wife, we, we got divorced a few years ago. She traveled for business and so we never had kids. And at the same time, I didn't commute. I had a practice at home. I was a child and family therapist, not a eating disorders therapist. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of time in my hands, so I started doing consulting for clients in her business. And she was a focus group moderator. Still, is very good. Mm-hmm. I wound up consulting for gigantic companies in the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry and some other industries also, but mostly food and pharmaceuticals, where the money was. Mm-hmm. And... What I saw in the food industry was that there were, I want to say billions, I I can't necessarily document that, I'm pretty sure it is billions, an awful lot of money being thrown at engineers, like rocket scientists basically, uh, chemists and um, flavor specialists. They're spending all this money to do research to engineer food-like substances Mm -hmm. that are designed to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result is addiction. And I say, well, that has nothing to do with why my mama didn't love me enough when I was one year old or anything, or why I'm in a bad marriage and I'm eating to escape my loneliness or depression. There's nothing to do with it. Right. So that's one thing. And and then I looked at, you know, all the like hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that go into those food-like substances that make us all look for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container while some, you know, fat cat in a white suit with a mustache laughs all the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. I also looked at the advertising industry, you know, because I was privy to a lot of, um, I was one of those guy, psychologists who tried to figure out, well, how do you get people to buy this stuff? And I was on the wrong side of the war. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, no, I really was. I, I'm, I feel guilty about it. Like, I often feel, you ever see the commercials with the Marlboro man late in his life? Yes. Um, for people who don't know, he, I mean, first of all, I think he got lung cancer, but secondly, he, he felt did. incredibly guilty. Yeah, yeah, and he did all these public service announcements about, um, you know, oh my God, I shouldn't have got all that money for killing people. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, I don't think I was quite that bad because I did some other things too, but um, I was one of those guys. And people think advertising doesn't affect them, but... I mean, first of all, there are five to 7,000 messages beamed at us over the airwaves and the internet. Maybe a half dozen of them are for fruit and vegetables. So I knew how effective they were because I saw the studies. And I also knew that advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales resistance is down. And that's that's right where the advertising industry wants you. Mm. So that was another really powerful force aligned against me that, and everyone else, that made me realize that, gee, maybe this doesn't have to do with, um, you know, my inner wounded child. Mm-hmm. Then I did my own study. I was getting paid a lot of money to do these studies. And this was back in the days when the internet clicks were really cheap, like 1996, 1997, something like that. Mm-hmm. And over the course of several years, I got 40,000 people to take a survey. Whoa, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. Yeah. And the survey was all about how 
what what foods can't you stop eating once you start? Mm-hmm. And what's bothering you in your life? Where do you feel stressed? Mm-hmm. And I found a few interesting relationships, people who felt people who couldn't stop eating chocolate and all my binges started with chocolate. I decided to have maybe half a bar and that would be fine. It was dark chocolate and then you know what happened after that. Yes. Turns into um, a bar and then maybe multiple and then other forms of chocolate for a lot of people. Well, and and then for me it was, you know, a whole pizza or two and a box, box of muffins and yeah. a box of munchkins and whatever I could find. Right. I found that people who struggled with chocolate tended to be lonely, brokenhearted, or depressed. Hmm. Uh, people who struggle with crunchy, salty things like chips and pretzels, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with um, soft, chewy things like starches, like bread and bagels and pasta, they, they tended to be stressed at home. Hmm. And I thought that was fascinating. And still thinking very much like a psychologist back then, I thought, well, okay, for me personally, I need to figure out how to address the loneliness and depression. And I, I was in a bad marriage. I really was kind of uh-huh. lonely, lonely and depressed. It's interesting because you're probably familiar with Janine Roth's work. Um, of course. Eating in the light of the moon, you know, that type where she analyzes what is it that you crave. And it's often relationship to what's going on emotionally that would lend itself to say, yes, that there is a relationship there. Now, what we do about that it's different here. So continue. It's very true. Yeah. Well, it's very true. It's very true. There is a relationship there. And it's a fascinating relationship and it's a very soulful relationship. Um, I don't find that analyzing that relationship is the solution, at least at least not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I love Janine Roth. I recommend people read her work. Um, I don't find that it was the solution for people like me. Here's why. I'll tell you a story. Yeah. I asked my mom right around this time, what it was in my upbringing that could have made that connection for me. Why do I rent the chocolate when I feel lonely or depressed or brokenhearted? And she gets this horrible look on her face and sound in her voice. And she says, Glenn, honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, you know, it's okay. It's, I was like 41 years old at this point. I said, this is a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I forgive you, whatever it is. I'm just trying to figure it out. And she goes, I'm so sorry. But when you were about one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I not only had you as a little one-year-old, but we were working on making a second, mm-hmm. second baby, your sister. And I thought I was going to be you know, an army widow with two little kids, and I was terrified. At the same time, your grandfather, my dad, he had just gotten out of prison and I had idolized him my whole life and it turned out he was guilty and I had no idea he was doing these things and my whole world fell apart. So half the time when you were um, crying or hungry or lonely or coming running to me for a hug, I just didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you. I was sitting and staring at the wall, feeling Mm -hmm. depressed and anxious myself. And so here's what I did. I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and I got a refrigerator to keep on the floor, and I put the bottle in there. Mm. And I said, "Go get your Bosco, Glenn." And wow. I go, "Right?" Right? Yeah. Wow. Now here's the rub, though. It was a brilliant insight. 
Uh-huh. There, there is the origin of the pattern right there for you. Yeah. If this were the movies, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and then I'd never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Right. In the movies. In the movies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Not in our offices, in real life. <laughs> yeah. Well, would you believe me if I told you that the opposite happened, that it actually got worse? Yes, I would. Uh-huh. The reason it got worse was because of this crazy voice in my head. Now, I'm not schizophrenic or anything. I don't actually hear voices, but this thought in my head that immediately jumped in to justify eating more chocolate. And it went something like this. You know what, Glenn? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And now you finally know. So until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to just go right on binging. Yippee, let's go get some more chocolate right now. Mm-hmm. And at that juncture, combined with things I was studying about physiology, um, you know, that the neuroanatomy of the brain mm-hmm. suggested that there are essentially two parts that you could divide it into three, but really two is simpler. There's the lower brain and the upper brain, mm-hmm. and the lizard brain, the lower brain, the reptilian brain, when it evaluates something in the environment, It doesn't consider love. The lizard brain knows eat, mate, or kill. Mm -hmm. What is that thing? Do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? That's that's the lower brain. That's what it's thinking. Yeah. And that's what its function is. It generates the it generates the survival responses: Mm -hmm. fight or flight, feast or famine. And it turns out that those survival responses are largely responsible for overeating, especially binge eating or compulsive overeating. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a perceived state of emergency. Now, I said to myself, I know that this is the part of the brain that's active in food addiction, and this part of the brain doesn't know love. How in the world could I love myself back to health if I'm dealing with a part of the brain that love is irrelevant to? It's it's the upper part of the brain, the, the neocortex, particularly the frontal lobe, that says, wait a minute. Before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does this have on the people that you love? What impact does this have on your tribe and your family? What impact does it have on your long-term goals or your pursuit of art or spirituality or music? Yeah, uh, it's the part that makes us human. It's the part that makes us human. And so this is the embarrassing part. I decided I was going to have to dominate my lizard brain the same way that you dominate your bladder. Your bladder will jump up and tell you in the middle of a meeting, you really got to pee. But you say, hold on a minute. I have other goals. I can't jump up in the middle of this meeting. Um, You'll have to wait. I'm the boss and you'll have to wait. Mm -hmm. Now you can't totally ignore it or, you know, in several hours, it's going to show you what happens, but you don't let it boss you around. You boss it around. Correct. Same with your reproductive instincts. You see attractive people on the street, you don't just run up and kiss them. Right. You subjugate those very powerful biological urges to your will. Yeah, this is the part of your book that I just found one enlightening and two hilarious. I've got to tell you, because <laughs> some of the examples you gave for like, you don't walk into your mother in law's house and just poop right there on the carpet. I, I don't. Yeah, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> right. Or you don't run stop signs all the time. 
right? You stop. You don't rob banks even though you want money. You could be in a real rush mm-hmm. and you still stop at the stop sign. Yes. You could, you could really, 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 really have to poo and you still don't go in your mother-in-law's living room. Right. Because you, right. you're the boss. Right. So is this a mind shift for me of like, wait a minute, we do actually exert self-control all day. Right. And most of the approach in our culture says that the urge, it wants you to deal with what the urge represents Mm -hmm. to to say that you, you need to put out the fire or damp down the fire by taking care of your emotional well-being. And, you know, I I want you all to take care of your emotional well-being. I mean, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm a love, I'm a loving guy and I'm really just a big teddy bear. If you see me at a conference and you want to hug, I'm, you know, I, I got one for you. But, um, I think what was happening to me when I was trying to love myself thin and concentrating on the emotional needs that were behind the urge, I think that um, I was just opening up to the lizard brain to do what it wanted to. Mm-hmm. I was saying, there, there, now you can have what you need. The upshot of that was that I, I, I realized that it was that voice of justification that made it possible for the fire to jump out of the fireplace. So, so a roaring fire... Mm-hmm. is not a problem in a well-contained fireplace. Right. As a matter of fact, it becomes the center of hearth and home. It's actually an asset. Yes. You think of the fire like your emotions when they're raging, mm-hmm. wh- whether it's you know, sadness or anger or loneliness or wh- whatever it is, raging emotion. You don't have to be afraid of that. You need to have a very well-constructed fireplace. And what this voice of justification does is it pokes holes in the fireplace and if it can set it up so even one ash can escape, one spark can escape, then it could burn the house down. And I realized it was a lot quicker to recognize and disempower that voice. I, I got some help from um, other people who have similar models in drug addiction, Jack Trimpey in particular at Rational Recovery, mm-hmm. who works with um, mostly with drugs and alcohol. Um, and I always tell people, don't use my work for drugs and alcohol, use his. But it's a, it's a lot quicker to fix the fireplace to recognize and disempower that voice of justification than it is to fix the emotions. It could take a lifetime to find the love of your life. Some people never do. Um, It can take 10 years to cure depression through psychological means. Mm -hmm. But recognizing and and disempowering all the little shots your voice of justification takes at that fireplace, that can be done in a few weeks to a few months. Mm -hmm. So here's the embarrassing part. This is what I did. As a sophisticated psychologist who'd done tens of millions of dollars of studies and had a full practice and published all these articles, I decided that I was going to call my lizard brain my pig. I wish I picked another metaphor. Mm -hmm. I was not going to publish this. This was a private thing. Mm -hmm. But I decided I was going to call it my pig, my inner pig. turns out you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it a food monster or junkyard dog or something. But I decided it was my pig. I decided I was going to have to turn the addiction into something black and white and make very clear bright lines with very clear rules about what was on one side of the line and what was on the other. So for example, one of the first rules I experimented with was I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Then I decided. What did your pig say when you made that rule? Oh, my pig doesn't like that rule. It didn't like, okay. <laughs> so like when you initially made this rule, this is the first rule you made and the, and decide to, to call that voice a pit, the pig, right? Your pig. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you before you were like, oh, that is the pig and I'm not giving in to the pig and, you know, I've got to talk to the pig and get back in your cage. Like, what was that process like for you? 
Um, it was not instantaneous. The rest of the model is that the chocolate itself on a weekday, I called that pig slop. Uh-huh. And whatever the pig would say, like, Chief, when you worked out hard enough today, you can afford a little chocolate. You can just start tomorrow. I call that pig squeal. Mm-hmm. And whenever the pig would squeal, I would say, I don't want that my pig does. That's pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Again, this was going to be totally private. I was not going to tell anybody about this. Yeah. Well, thank God you uh, did. I just want to say Yeah. <laughs> but gotcha. Like when you originally came up with it, it was just for yourself. And this is working for you, right? Yes. I've lost, um, I think I did your coaching program in May. I read the ebook probably in February or March or April, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. I started with a rule before I did your coaching program. So I started with one rule like you did. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't know that actually from the book, um, I thought I will just try one rule. That's it. And it worked. And so then I had a handful of rules going on. I want to say these were important rules. I needed to make some changes in my life. And I'll say not all of them were about food, too. So some of them, your your motto, I want to be clear with the listeners, is it about food. That's what the rules are for. Uh-huh. But for me, part of that was I'm going to continue to persevere with figuring out what's going on because I needed a, a medication change. I'm hypothyroid. I see. Yeah. Until I figure this out, because in the past, I would read a little, get overwhelmed, stop, right? And then continue eating a way that wasn't very healthy for me. So that was that's one a, of them. That, but that's, that's fantastic. Go yeah, ahead. let me fast forward. So as of Saturday, and we're recording this in mid-October, I've lost 30 pounds. And more importantly, I'm on the right track with my medication, So I persevered with my doctor, requesting the testing that I needed, requesting the change of medication, even though she was like, I've never prescribed this before. And I was like, I understand that, you know, came from a place of compassion, right? Like they don't teach you how to do this in a PA school or medical school, honestly, like MD or PA school. They don't teach this. So here's the research I've gathered. Here are the studies. Here's the medication I want to try. So really persevered with that. And we're on that path. And so it's a combination. But I do believe that if I had not changed the diet, those pounds would not come off. I'm so very happy to hear that. Yeah. And, and j- just so you know, you don't have to apologize for having success without the coaching program. It's it's actually set up. The book is set up. And I, I give the book away for free. I'll tell people where they can get it. Yes. It's set up to help people comprehensively without assistance. The, the coaching program makes it go faster. Oh, but yeah. My, well, I think the coaching program was really valuable for me because it was a, a level of commitment for me, honestly, of I went more in depth than what the book is giving and the coaching program definitely gives that. And I, this is a commitment to myself for this path. And so it was accountability for myself. And on, honestly, I, I like support. It, like I like to know support is there and you have different levels that people can sign up for according to their own budget. But the level I signed up for was a year of support should I need it. And fantastic. Like, fantastic. I really haven't used it, but I like knowing it's there. It's like, yep, absolutely. I, I can get it if I need it. That's terrific. I, I'm really glad it's working for you. It, and it's not unusual that people, once they discover 
that you can structure your mind like this to use it for other things. And that's a, that's a really shiny example. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Well, see, you asked me how long it took. Yes. And initially, what happened was instantaneously, I would recognize when it was the pig versus me. And I would wake up and have those extra microseconds to realize that this is not what I promised. This is against my rules. That's my pig talking. My pig is squealing for slop. Mm-hmm. I don't eat pig slop. I don't live for it. And I would say those things, and I would realize that I was in control. Sometimes I would decide to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. But it eradicated the sense of hopelessness. I no longer felt hopeless or powerless or defenseless against this chronic, progressive, mysterious thing inside me. Mm-hmm. I, I suddenly realized what was going on. And that gave me tremendous hope. And so I kept at it. I persevered. Over time, I found the binges became less serious. Sometimes I would listen. Sometimes I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And eventually said, now, wait a minute. Nobody's imposing this rule upon me. These are my own rules. It's kind of silly to break my own rules. Let me try. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, if, if I want to have chocolate more often, I'll say, I'm not going to have chocolate on Tuesday and Thursday, but any other day is okay. If I really wanted to do that, I could do that. And so I tinkered with the rules, and I decided to make following the food plan, following the rules, a paramount importance in my life. Mm-hmm. When I did that, and I was really kind to myself and gentle about forgiving myself if I made a mistake, I, I say you want to commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. Then they started to stick quicker. You know, I would start with the one rule about chocolate, but then I fairly quickly realized I needed rules about sugar and flour also. Mm-hmm. And then I needed a rule to help me be sure I was eating enough because it's easy to use this to become too restrictive. And that's, uh, by the way, if there's anybody who's struggling with being too thin or anorexic or anything like that, you have to be really careful. Um, make sure that you're, you know, objectively tallying your nutrition and calories, mm-hmm. either with a licensed professional or a, um, or at least with one of the online calculators like Chronometer or MindFitnessPal or something. Mm-hmm. And I would say the chocolate struggle lasted another six to eight months. And I finally came to the conclusion with chocolate that I just never would have it again. I, I realized that I was trying six ways to Sunday, all these different combinations of rolls, and there were just some things that tasted too good. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody listening has to stop having chocolate. There are a lot yeah, of people right. who... That- that would strike fear into some listener's heart, right? <laughs> like, never again. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the, the more typical course with my clients is that there are foods that they were out of control with, and the first things that we try are some very specific boundaries around those foods without giving them up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I can have one ounce of dark chocolate per day, um, but not after six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And once those decisions have been made, they found that what they were really suffering from was decision fatigue. They hadn't made a decision about how much chocolate was enough or too much, very specifically. And because of that, they had to make constant decisions. And there's a lot of research that suggests that decisions wear down your willpower. Yes. Yeah. And so someone who says, I'm going to have one ounce a day and that's it, is more likely to be be able to comply than someone who says, I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Because... You say you're going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time. Well, when you're sitting in Starbucks and your pig says, you know, G. Glenn chocolate 
grows on a cocoa bean, which comes on a plant, and therefore it's a vegetable. Um, I'm being a little facetious, <laughs> but I'm, I'm being a little facetious. But those types of things happen. Or if it just says, you know, you could just start tomorrow. Yes. Or or if it says you've been good. How do you know if this is one of the 10% or one of the 90% of the time? So you have to make another decision, and that wears down your willpower. But if you say, I'll only have chocolate the last three calendar days of the month, then 90% of the time your decisions have been made, and it becomes a lot easier. So the more typical course with the clients that I work with is usually that they put very specific boundaries on the foods that are out of control. And I'd say 70% of the time that works, and the other 30, we have to eliminate it. Okay, okay. So that's a process that people try out. Like, let's try yeah. this rule first and see if it works. And if you keep breaking your own rule, then we change it to where it works for you, but in a way that's good for you, basically, in a way that the pig is not running the game here. It's really important that you develop the autonomous ability to make food decisions with your intellect as opposed to your emotions. Mm-hmm. Which, which a real shorthand way of saying that is you make the decisions in your frontal lobe. You don't let the reptilian brain make it in the, in the midbrain or the lower brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once I gave up chocolate, people think you're going to be tortured with those cravings forever. But you're really not because there's a process in the brain and a process with the taste, sense, the taste system, taste buds, mm-hmm. called upregulation and downregulation. It's like this. If you... If you eat sugar every day, if you eat chocolate every day, your taste buds are going to desensitize themselves because it's an artificial concentration of sugar and stimulants and fat, and, and it's more delicious than anything you could find in nature. Mm-hmm. And so our neurology, in order to deal with that, downgrades the level of responsiveness. And this is why you get to the point where people say, well, I need this to survive or nothing Nothing tastes good to me besides chocolate or salt or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. K- kind of like I slept underneath the subway in graduate school the first year. I got an apartment underneath the L-line. Okay. I'm glad it was an apartment under the subway. Not like- yeah. <laughs> I wasn't a homeless person. Yes. Um, <laughs> not unheard of, though, for graduate students. So. Not unheard of. No, that was a tough time. The first week, it was really difficult to sleep. The subway was just too loud. Mm-hmm. But then something kind of miraculous happened. I, I couldn't really hear it after three or four weeks. It's because my brain downgraded the response. It downregulated its response to that supersized stimulus. Yes. Now, when I went and spent a week in the country and then came back to my apartment in, in Astoria, Queens, the subway sounded loud again. Mm-hmm. What that says is that if you take away the excessive stimulation – that your nervous system upregulates its responsiveness again. So it wasn't permanently permanently damaged, it was just suppressed. Same thing happens with your taste buds. Mm -hmm. If you eat chocolate all the time, then fruit and vegetables are not going to taste great to you. If you stop having chocolate, then your taste buds, I think the research says they're going to double in sensitivity. This is if you give up um, a lot of excess stimulation. They double in sensitivity over the course of six to eight weeks. And you'll start to be able to taste the natural um, natural pleasures that nature intended. You don't, you're not supposed to believe this. Every bone in your body is supposed to say, you know, I'm going to hand over the chocolate or I'm going to punch you in the face. Mm-hmm. But um, if you try it, if you try it, it will happen. Oh, yeah, it's happened. There was a time where I gave up all sugar, all sweeteners, and an apple 
became like so sweet that you know, my kids would just laugh and laugh because I was like, oh my God, I can't eat it. It's too sweet. The apple's too sweet. It's like my my taste buds shifted. Absolutely. I and, and not a- Go on. I'm sorry. I could taste sweetness and all kinds of natural things that before were not as appealing. Not only do you taste the sweetness, but you can start to taste subtle differences in different species of apples. Yes. Mm-hmm. So a Fiji apple is going to taste different than a Gala apple, which is going to taste different than a Pink Lady versus going to taste yes. different than it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it does happen. You hear people talk about this. It is hard to believe if you haven't actually had the experience yourself. Yeah. There's enough people that talk about it. And now we do have the, the research on the brain to go behind it, that it really does happen. So it becomes a process, I think, of saying, you know, if I just try this out for six weeks, I'm going to shift. I won't crave that anymore. It'll go yeah. down my health will be much more important, like, you know, whatever that is for you, that motivation. And the first hundred hours are the hardest. Yeah. You, you, you might just be a hundred hours from freedom. A lot of people will never make it that hundred hours to find out, but it's a little scary for people to think about doing an experiment for six weeks, but do an experiment for a hundred hours and see how you feel. True. Yeah. That's only, how many days is that? That's, uh, That's four, four, di- four, four and a quarter days, I think. Four, four, and one, days. four and one six days, something like that. Yes. So we are getting to the end of our time here. I do want to say that. And I want to make sure that people know how to find your book and how to find you. So can you let them know that? Well, if you go through the website at neverbingagain.com, which is where you'll find everything, and you click the big red button for the free reader bonuses and you sign up for them, you will get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. You can also buy the physical format or the audible format, but you can get a copy for free in Kindle, Nook, or PDF. I recorded a bunch of full-length coaching sessions because I know this sounds really weird in theory, and you must be thinking, why does Dr. Elizabeth have this other psychologist who has a pig inside him? It sounds really harsh. It sounds really bizarre, but it's not. It's, it's a very compassionate, soul-enhancing process. And if you listen to how it works in practice, you'll, you'll feel better about it. Agreed. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the last thing, well, not the last thing, but the third big thing you get for free when you sign up there is a copy of the food plan starter templates. We call them starter templates because I don't want to take responsibility for your food plan. It turns out it's very important to be autonomous, not to feel like anybody else told you what to eat. Because if someone tells you what to eat, the pig is eventually going to say, that guru doctor's diet plan is no good. We're going to have to find another one. Mm-hmm. But, it, but if you do it, you, your pig can't play with you like that. So food plan templates, um, no matter what diet you happen to be on, low carb, high carb, point counting, calorie calorying, it's, this is a diet agnostic program. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not pushing any. I'm <laughs> right. not, it does. It can apply to any yeah. way that you choose to eat. Yeah. So I'm not pushing my way of eating because everybody would run away screaming if they knew what I ate. Mm-hmm. People use that on all sorts of diets. And just go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. You can use the contact button there also. I will eventually see those notes if you need to write to me. Fantastic. So is there room for uh, psychology, let's say, in this? Like when do you find that people need extra help? Let's say for a therapist or hypnotherapy, like however do they decide to get that. Oh, well, you know, there's the fire in the fireplace. And there are a lot of 
soulful, interesting things you can learn about yourself by looking at the fire. I, I've seen a therapist for a lot of years, you know, working in the loneliness and, and depression. I, I'm a big proponent of psychology. I just think that it needs to be looked at as secondary to um, getting control of the thoughts that justify the binges first. And you know, people would say that's psychology anyway. Like, like, a, uh, like the evidence on binge eating seems to be circling around cognitive behavioral interventions like this. So you could say it's psychology. I typically don't because I think it confuses people. Mm-hmm. But um, the understanding of what happened with my mom made me a lot more compassionate for myself. And I pursued that both with a therapist and with my mom. And it helps in the forgiveness phase because see here, here's a a really bizarre trick. The pig plays when you make a mistake, the pig jumps on top of you and pounds the gavel and says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And now all bets are off. Um, And it it gets you caught up in negative self-talk that negative self-talk makes it much harder to get up and aim at the target again. It makes it much harder to resist the next binge. As a matter of fact, you'll find it difficult to keep binge eating or to keep overeating if you refuse to alienate yourself. And so the psychological insight that I had really helped me in the forgiveness phase. I, it softened that negative voice and it helped me to get up and aim at the target again more quickly, doing less damage when I made a mistake. Okay. Very interesting. I'll tell a similar story actually of, I was hitting somewhat of a plateau and I said to my own hypnotherapist and and mentor, I said, all these feelings are coming up. Like when I hit a particular weight. Okay. So when I hit the one eighties, these feelings about where I was the last time I was at that weight came up when I hit the one seventies, all these feelings came rushing back. And I yes. said, I don't like them. You know, like, I don't want to feel this way. Like, and I don't want it to stop me from losing more weight or breaking my rules or doing any of that. And so she and I did some work around that, around resolving those feelings, around breaking through that plateau, like, you know, some of that, so that I stay with my rules, so that I continue to put the pig back in his cage continue to make the good decisions to help myself. I'm totally in favor of that. You can make life more comfortable. You don't have to be super miserable. You you do have to tell your pig, though, that there is no level of emotional misery that will cause you to feed the pig. You have to be be willing to experience it, but there's no reason to be uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable when you can work with a hypnotist or a therapist to – you know, tamp down that fire a little bit. Okay. Okay, great. That's helpful. Thank you. Well, well thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here and not just for being on the podcast, but your work in general, it really has helped me change my Thank life. you, dear. Thank yes. you. Yes, and I know lots of people. I'll be listening to a random podcast and they'll talk about the Never Binge Again book. <laughs> we have almost a million readers now. I can't believe it. That's fantastic. Fantastic. They, they, they don't recognize me though. People don't. They, they kind of sort of recognize me in person, but they don't remember my name. They just point at me and go, pig guy, pig guy. Oh, your branding's too good. That's what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like, remember the name of the book and the image and the, you know, the little, uh, the pig. Yeah. That's it's not really something guy. you want to have happen when you're on, on your first date, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> right. Well, thank you again for being here. Okay, dear. Ha- have a good day. You too. truly enjoying today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way, more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Peace.